Hello, and welcome to the Letters from Our Fathers podcast, where we explore the actual history of America's founding fathers from their own written words and personal correspondence, but without modern partisan political ideologies. I am your host, Roman. Now let's learn some real history. All right, everybody, welcome back to the podcast. Great to have you here. It's great to be back. I hope everybody enjoyed their 2022 Independence Day. Had a chance to spend quality time with friends, family, maybe uh, go over the Declaration of Independence and have some fun discussing that. This is going to be episode number 64 of the podcast, and we are going to continue our discussion on not just the Declaration of Independence, but many other things surrounding that time period. We're going to go back into the letters of Dr. Franklin, and this will be a feature-length episode. And I've got some good letters lined up, I believe. Uh, some some of them I, you know, well, one letter in particular, I felt like it might be a little bit redundant with some of the things that we discussed with Mr. Adams uh, and his letters. But honestly, there's enough difference in it. And there's some uh, there's some elements that are there that I don't feel were fully captured with the letters from John Adams. So we're going to talk about that. And we got, we got some good stuff. We got three letters total that we're going to try to get to today. I think we'll have time for all three. And I certainly want to thank everybody out there for supporting the podcast. I greatly appreciate it. Per usual, you know, I'll tell you, you know, like I said, I don't make any money on this podcast. So really the only thank you that I get as far as doing this work is the the listenership of the audience, or more specifically what I call the uh, the members of the study group. I don't so much refer to you folks as an audience of a podcast, but members of a study group here that we have. I am simply the the lead element of the study group, and the rest of you folks are here to uh, listen to the letters that I bring to the table. And uh, if you so choose, uh, interact with the podcast in the reviews uh, to the podcast. Uh, always an option for you there if you have access to Apple Podcasts, which is where I check for reviews. You know, kind of an update on that. I haven't talked about this in a while. You know, Apple Podcasts is the only place I check for reviews now because honestly, I, I checked some of the other platforms to see if they even had the option to leave a review on the podcast. I didn't see any option for that. Uh, so honestly, I just stopped trying to check and see if there was a way to do that. On Apple Podcasts, there's a pretty clear and transparent way to do that, so that's where I check for the reviews. Uh, if you're not on Apple Podcasts, it's just one of those things. I'm going to try, by the way, to get um, my Patreon uh site is technically still there. I haven't checked it in a while, though, because I discontinued my Patreon podcast for a short time. Uh, well, I say for a short time. It's been months, and I did that for a couple of reasons. Number one is I didn't have time for it. Number two, I wanted to redesign it and come back at it again, but uh, I may set it up in such a way again that you can send messages through there, and I may ch- I think Honestly, I think you probably still can send messages through there if I had to guess. I don't know why you wouldn't be able to. I just haven't been checking for it because the podcast side of things was not active. I wasn't actually uploading any content over there, but I may start going over there and checking for reviews or something like that, or comment, more specifically comments and things of that nature. Um, I don't know if I'll start uploading that podcast again anytime soon. It's a it's a time thing with me and that, that Patreon podcast. It's a, I have a lot of responsibilities and a lot of things to do, and which is a good thing. I'm not complaining about that, but... Um, because I really want to do the Patreon podcast. I really enjoyed it. And there were, there, I only, I think I only did like eight to 10 episodes or something like that over there. I forget exactly how many there were. Uh, a few of them I thought were pretty good uh, and delivered some unique content that uh, didn't, I didn't have anywhere else. So I'll think about that. And I'll, I'll, somewhere between now and the next episode, I'll cruise over there to the Patreon site and I'll check and see if there's any messages. So if anybody actually did send anything through there, I'll check on that. 
and see uh, see what's going on. But for today, what I'll do is I will go back into the letters of uh, Benjamin Franklin. We're going to stick with him, and more specifically, these are really all going to be letters written to Benjamin Franklin today. They're not going to be letters written from Benjamin Franklin, so it's going to be uh, the folks who are informing Dr. Franklin of what was going on in the colonies at this time. Again, he's still in London. Uh, this is before he came back. Thank goodness he did make it back, but uh, this is before that, and we're going to continue to get some different perspective from London and, and whatnot, and just some uh, different letters about the goings-on in the colonies during this period of time as, uh, as folks were trying to keep Dr. Franklin up to speed as to the situation. So let's do that. Let's get into the letters written to Dr. Benjamin Franklin. Let's do that right now. All right, once more into the fray, shall we? Let's um, figure out what we're going to hear in regards to Dr. Franklin, or more specifically, the letters written to Dr. Franklin by some of these other folks. And the first letter that we're going to have is actually an interesting one. This is kind of a letter that I picked out. I don't have a lot of commentary about this one. It's really just a fun letter. I thought it was fun anyway. But then again, this is the kind of stuff that I find fun in my life. Uh, if that doesn't paint a picture for you, I don't know what will. Uh, this is going to be a letter written from the Congress in Philadelphia on October 26th of 1774 to Dr. Benjamin Franklin, amongst others. And let's see what the uh, the Congress had to say to Dr. Franklin. Quote, We give you the strongest proof of our reliance on your zeal and attachment to the happiness of America and the cause of liberty when we commit the enclosed papers to your care. We desire you will deliver the petition into the hands of His Majesty, and after it has been presented, we wish it may be made public through the press, together with the list of grievances, and as we hope for great assistance from the spirit and virtue and justice of the nation, it is our earnest desire that the most effectual care be taken as early as possible to furnish the trading cities and manufacturing towns throughout the United Kingdom with our memorial to the people of Great Britain, end quote. So this is a, a reference to that petition that they were sending to the king, their list of grievances, trying to appeal to the tyrant about the various problems it is that they're suffering in the colonies as a result of his overly tyrannical attitude. Now, in hindsight, we know that the king basically told the colonists to go pound sand, which is a way of saying he told them to uh, take their grievances and shove it. Isn't that usually what tyrants do? Usually, yeah. That, that's pretty standard fare. Now, every once in a while, a tyrant will surprise the people and say, uh, okay, well, we're gonna, we're gonna back down from that. But that's, it's very rare. It does happen on occasion. But tyrants are very belligerent, typically, in, in their demands. Uh, even when something clearly isn't working. I mean, we may have seen something like that in recent times. I mean, relatively recent times. I mean, tyrants come out with their edicts and their demands and they, uh, try to foist things up upon the people. In this case, it's, you know, taxes and other things, like in 1774 or 75. Uh, any, at any given time in history, it may be that, it may be something else. And then you, you might see a situation where it's clearly not working, it's creating more problems than not, or at the very least, the it, it's just creating problems, period, and creating a lot of discontent, and the tyrant just doubles down and says, I don't care. And that's what King George III did here. So, But you can see also that the colonists are trying to appeal to the greater sensibilities of the people of Great Britain. The colonists are putting some faith in the, uh, the good nature of the people of Britain to understand their cause. And a great many people in Britain did. Unfortunately, not enough. 
Let us continue, quote, We doubt not, but that your good sense and discernment will lead you to avail yourselves of every assistance that may be derived from the advice and friendship of all great and good men who may incline to aid the cause of liberty and mankind. The gratitude of America expressed in the enclosed vote of thanks we desire may be conveyed to the deserving objects of it in the manner that you think will be the most acceptable to them. It is proposed that another Congress be held on the 10th May next at this place. But in the meantime, we beg the favor of you gentlemen to transmit to the speakers of the several assemblies the earliest information of the most authentic accounts you could collect of all such conduct and designs of ministry or parliament as it may concern America to know. We are with unfeigned esteem and regard, gentlemen, by order of the Congress. End quote. And that was signed by Henry Middleton, President of Congress. This was back when uh, this was back when the president of Congress actually showed up to do his job. Uh, unlike the president of the Senate in the last you know hundred plus years or so, who does not show up to do their job. By the way, that is a, a perpetual uh, thorn in my craw, so to speak. I, it's it's just it, it bothers me. It bothers me when people don't show up to do their job, and especially when it's politicians who are charged with the public trust. And whenever I, whenever I see this title at the end of these letters, you know, when the president of the Congress is signing it, I immediately think of the president of the Senate, which would be the vice president, uh, for all the, for if you folks out there aren't aware of that. There might be some folks overseas who don't know that. And I understand how you wouldn't know that because you never see the vice president actually do that job. Why? Because the vice president doesn't do that job. They don't want to. It's beneath them. Or so they think. Uh, they have better things to do with their time, such as, you know, wander off and give speeches about stupid crap that doesn't matter. But anyway, that's uh, that's America in the uh, 20th and 21st centuries. But let's uh, segue back to the 18th century, shall we? Uh, so here we have, and by the way, that was a bar- that was that was very much a bipartisan statement of mine uh, for anybody who thinks I'm being partisan. I'm not talking about the current vice president. I'm talking about all of them for like beyond my entire lifetime and going way back this has been the case for a very long time this is a bipartisan effort i mean show me a vice president in the last hundred plus years who's actually done their job good luck with that so as i said here we have the um congress trying to also get some information back from dr franklin they try to elicit that quote but in the meantime we beg the favor of you gentlemen to transmit to the speakers of the several assemblies the earliest information of the most authentic accounts you can collect end quote what in the world does that mean? What are we talking about here? The speakers of the several assemblies. Keep in mind that while there was a general congress organized in Philadelphia, the state legislatures, so to speak, is how I'll refer to them, state assemblies, whatever, what have you. We've talked about them at some length before, especially the one in Massachusetts, Virginia, and uh, we also talked a little bit about Pennsylvania way back in the day, early in the podcast. Um, the, the, while the congress was going on, we still have our respective state assemblies doing the work of the people of the the various colonies. So even from the very beginning, we have this structure of a general congress which which today we would refer to as the national or federal congress, but the but even at the time even after the United States was formed and even after the constitution was formed, the founding fathers still retur- refer to it as best as I can tell more often than not as the general congress. So whenever I say general congress, I mean what we call today the, the the federal Congress, but while that was happening, there was also still these these colonial assemblies in the various colonies, just like we have our state assemblies today, or state legislatures, as they're as they're more commonly referred to in some states. This structural organization existed in, before the beginning, basically before the beginning of the country, and there's good reason for that. The General Congress was not expected 
to have carte blanche authority over the colonies. As a matter of fact, in many cases, the delegates that were sent to the General Congress could not act without the approval of their constituent assemblies back in the states, or excuse me, the colonies in the beginning. Isn't that interesting? These people were sent to act on behalf of their states, basically their constituents, not to act on behalf of the General Congress, not to act on behalf of some overarching, overpowering national, or in this case, colonial government governing the whole of the colonies. That's not the purpose of it. The Founding Fathers would have revolted at such a notion as that. Isn't that interesting? And in that, and I get that just from this one sentence, all of that is basically revealed in this one sentence that I just read to you. And I come back to this again. If you want to know the answer to a question, history has the answer. You just have to know how you just have to know where to look and how to ask the question. But history has the answer to every single question of substance that you could possibly ever ask. Isn't that interesting? And isn't it interesting that mankind and human beings, including the people of the United States of America, continue to make the same mistakes over and over and over and over again simply because they don't know how to crack open a history book and ask the right questions. Because tell me this, do the American people understand this? Do the American people understand today how the General Congress and the various constituent assemblies of the states are supposed to work? They do not. I'll answer the question for you. They don't. Some do. I do. And you might, especially if you're a listener of this podcast and you're a part of our study group. Our study group has spent a great deal of time discussing this very issue, and it comes straight from the letters. I'm not making this up. That's the beauty of this podcast. This is real history, not fake history. This isn't me just making crap up and pontificating about it in a whimsical fashion into a microphone. This is me reading the letters of the Founding Fathers, the instru what I call the Instruction Manual to the United States Constitution and Declaration of Independence. So you know it's real. You know it's legit. You know I'm firing straight at it. I'm not, uh, I'm not trying to manipulate things here. Uh, so keep that in mind, you know, buried within even the simp, this is a very simple letter, buried within even the simplest of these letters. There's these little flickers and glimmers of the true nature of things, the way things were intended to be set up, little clues, little hints, and sometimes they're not clues and hints, they're just broad statements and they're right out there, plain as day. And we're going to get to one of those in one of the letters that we're going to talk about here today. Yes, we will. Now let's segue off into the next letter that we're going to talk about, written to Benjamin Franklin. This is going to be a letter written from Dr. Benjamin, or excuse me, written to Dr. Benjamin Franklin from Jonathan Williams on October the 28th of 1774. And speaking of which, Dr. Franklin, I honestly forget, and I didn't feel like I wanted to go back into the, uh, into the episodes previous with Dr. Franklin. If I explained exactly why it is he's called Dr. Franklin, uh, some people might wonder about that. Who's, who aren't familiar with him, especially uh, our international folks who may not have studied Dr. Franklin. And honestly, it's not like we study them here in the United States. I mean, newsflash, it wasn't like in high school. You know, there was an entire semester-length course on the Founding Fathers, and we spent like three weeks on Dr. Franklin. It, it didn't happen like that. Honestly, if Dr. Franklin is ever mentioned inside of a, a high school in the United States of America today, I would be shocked. Uh, that's how absolutely deplorable the education system in the United States is. But anywho, that's kind of a sidebar. He's called Dr. Franklin because of his, uh, his facility with invention. He was a great inventor and highly respected not just in the colonies, but also in Europe and anywhere else in the world where there were, you know, people who were up with the times. He was a very respected man, which is partly the reason why he was in London, it's also the reason why he's later sent to France. But he got honorary doctorates from many places. 
Uh, I don't think it was just one place. I, I even think Oxford may have been one of them. I forget. Um, you might you might uh, fact check me on that one, but I, I am fairly certain Oxford was one. I vaguely recall that from my readings about Dr. Franklin. So these these honorary doctorates uh, effectively allowed him to uh, to tolerate being called Dr. Franklin, and people did. Uh, because, you know, people had a respect for him. He, they felt like he earned it. They felt like he earned uh, some recognition for his accomplishments, and, and, and they were great. I mean, his inventions were fairly varied. I mean, it wasn't just one kind of thing. There was, the, there was his inventions around the, the issue of electricity, uh, but he also made, interestingly enough, there was, um, I've seen pictures of it. It was like a, it was like a crystal musical instrument. It, it, had, it was like a spinning instrument of crystal glass. And you effectively run your fingers along this crystal glass, and it makes a kind of a, I don't know, a very interesting sound. And there's, I, th I think his original, or one of his originals, actually still, still exists in a museum somewhere. It's fascinating. So if you haven't checked that out, you might go check that out uh, online. You'll be able to see pictures of it. Very fascinating. And like I said, Dr. Franklin was a genius man in invention, but also in the interactions between government and people. He was the wise old man. And in that capacity, I have a great deal of respect for Dr. Franklin. And uh, as always, we're uh, happy to be able to discuss Dr. Franklin on this podcast. This letter written to Dr. Benjamin Franklin from a Jonathan Williams on October 28, 1774. We are going to read almost the entire letter. It's uh, somewhat lengthy, but we'll get through it. Quote, Although you will be but a very little time absent, I can't refrain from communicating the news I have just received from America as it discovers a firmness and resolution which I think do honor to our countrymen, therefore must give you pleasure, end quote. So what was it that defined America during this point in time? I've said it before, you know, freedom and liberty are not won by happenstance most of the time. There are people in the world who I think live under tyranny and oppression, and they, they don't know how or they don't care to know how to actually get that freedom and liberty that they see in America for themselves. But I'll articulate it, as I have before, in a very simple statement. Freedom and liberty, more often than not, is won because there are people willing to stand up and get shot at. Shot at by people who know what they're doing. It's that simple. If you wanted to know the recipe for how to get freedom and liberty in a country, there you go. It's a little bit more complicated than that, but that, that's basically the, the big-ticket item. The other big-ticket item is actually knowing what to do with your freedom and liberty once you have it, which is the second biggest mistake that pretty much every country in the history of the world has ever made. It's a very complicated thing to know how to, how to, how to deal with that, and most, most people and most countries screw that up more often than not, and that's how freedom and liberty is lost again once it's gained. They don't know how to keep it because corruption, greed, all kinds of things enter into the equation. Uh, you need men of integrity who are willing to forego those things and actually stand up for freedom and liberty and willing to die for it. Like General Washington, for example. Uh, there's a reason why he did not become a king after the Revolutionary War was over, and it's solely because the man had such integrity as it pertained to freedom and liberty and his country. And there were, there were many other people like him. If he was the only one, it wouldn't have worked. But just FYI, but so, so in this letter, already at the very beginning, it's talking about this quote, I have just received from America as it discovers a firmness and resolution, which I think do honor our countrymen, therefore must give you pleasure, end quote. A firmness and resolution. So the, the people of the United States or the colonies at this time were firm and resolute. That's what you need, ladies and gentlemen. 
That's why I say, you know, on the Bill of Rights, you have to act as if that document is sacred. You have to be firm and resolute. You cannot give an inch, not one square inch of that document must be given up. Firmness, resolution, the recipe is there. Again, if you want to know what to do, if you want to know how to conduct yourselves, if you want to know what the right decision is, you just got it. Look at history, ask the question, and somebody will give you the answer. In this case, it's from our friend Jonathan Williams. Let us continue. Quote, In a Philadelphia paper of the 21st of September, which comes via Liverpool, is an account of the resolutions of the Convention of Delegates from the several towns and districts in the, country of, in the county of Suffolk, met at Milton near Boston, sometime about September 10th. Which resolutions, 14 in number, passed unanimously after the preamble, and one or two relative to their loyalty and affection to the king and his constitutional government? The principal ones were that the late acts of Parliament, being unconstitutional and oppressive, were not binding on them, and that therefore they would not obey them, that the county will support all sheriffs and other civil officers who refuse to act under these arbitrary laws, that no suit be brought before the present courts, that as therefore the course of the law will be stopped, it is recommended to all creditors to be as lenient as possible, and even generously indulgent to those who owe them, and to all debtors to pay as speedily as possible all of their debts. And in case of any difference, it is recommended to submit it to an arbitration, and whoever shall refuse so to do shall be declared as cooperating with the enemies of his country, end quote. Whoa. it's a lot of information in that paragraph, don't you think? That is a rather substantive and detailed report on the goings-on in the colonies at the time. And this is some new information. I mean, it's a different perspective. It's something we haven't heard before, and I thoroughly enjoy it. So we're talking about, quote, an account of the resolutions of the Convention of Delegates from the several towns and districts in the county of Suffolk, end quote. Near Boston, he says. And this is largely regarding the overthrow of the legitimate government of Massachusetts. Yes, that's exactly what happened. We, one, of the, one of the intolerable acts was effectively that. I'm paraphrasing slightly, but basically what it did was overthrow the legitimate government of Massachusetts and its various assemblies in some form or another, and it placed in, it placed in there a military dictator. I mean, imagine that, again, happening in, one of your, in your state, wherever you live in the United States. Imagine the central government coming in and overthrowing your legitimately elected governor, your legitimately elected state legislature, and imposing a military dictator upon your upon your state. Now, I know some people would enjoy that kind of thing, depending on what side of the fence they, they, uh, they fly on. But for those of us freedom-loving people, that is a kind of crime that is unforgivable. And it is a crime. And I mean that when I say it. And the, I am in good company. And if anybody disagrees with me, this is how I don't really care if people agree with me or disagree with me on this kind of thing. Because I'm in good company, and so are those of you who agree with me. Because I am in the company of the men and women that were a part of the Convention of Delegates from the several towns and districts in the county of Suffolk, met at Middleton, near Boston, sometime about September 10th. I'm in the company of those people. And that, that gives me great comfort. And these people... It's interesting what they say here, quote, that the late acts of Parliament, being unconstitutional and oppressive, were not binding on them, and that therefore they would not obey them, end quote. 
So what happened, again, if you want to know what history has to, has to say about this, if you ever want to know what to do, if, uh, if a country should ever go unconstitutional wherever you're at, be it in Europe, Asia, wherever, assuming you have a constitution, if the law is ever handed down that is unconstitutional and oppressive, it is, quote, not binding on them and that therefore they would not obey them, end quote. That's the right course of action, technically. And the people at uh, the people in the county of Suffolk were willing to uh, sally forth and follow down that road of not not uh, not following that particular law, not recognizing it, and rightfully so. Remember what this man said about firmness and resolution. There you go. Let's uh, let's read another one of these quotes again. Quote that the county will support all sheriffs and other civil officers who refuse to act under these arbitrary laws. End quote. Isn't that interesting? So they basically encourage their sheriffs and civil officers to refuse to act under the arbitrary laws. In other words, disregard them entirely. Now, here's the key point, because this is going to get confusing for some people out there in the audience. Just be, Some people are going to think that because a law is passed or a ruling is handed down that you don't like, that, and again, I'm speaking to just a relatively small portion of people who would ever listen to this podcast, I'm sure, because again... I don't suspect that very many people ever cruise into this podcast who are of this particular mindset because people like that don't tend to listen to content like this. They tend to listen to, uh, you know, pop culture and that's about it. But assuming, uh, assuming one of those folks has cruised into this podcast and has decided to enlighten themselves as to the true nature of the world, somebody might be tempted to take a law that they don't like or a ruling that they don't like and refuse to comply or suggest that others should refuse to comply simply because they don't like it. That's not what we're talking about here. What are we talking about? Quote, arbitrary laws, end quote. What what constitutes an arbitrary law? Keep in mind that the entire, this is all about the, the overthrow of the government of Massachusetts, which was a law passed out of parliament, which was effectively a body in which the colonists were not represented at all. It's like taxation without representation. This is like government overthrow without representation as well. They had no say in it. It was the tyrannical dictates of the central power. That's it. It would be like if uh, I'm trying to use an example that folks will understand in the modern day. It would be like if the president of the United States issued an executive order dictating some particular thing that, act, that, that, that the president had no legal authority to do, which has happened, by the way. I'm not going to get into details. The president of the United States, not, I'm not talking about the current president. I'm talking about presidents generally. Presidents have done this before. And I've talked about this before, about the danger of executive orders in the United States of America. It is an action that is seemingly more often than not contrary to all law and all constitutional conduct in the United States of America. I'm dead serious about that. And you can disagree with me if you want to. That's perfectly fine. Because sometimes a president may issue an executive order that, that somebody likes, and sometimes they may issue an executive order that they don't like. And depending on whether you like it or don't like it, you may fall on one side of the fence or the other. But believe me when I tell you, these, these kinds of dictates from a central power, and that's what they are, they're dictates, are dangerous. Because they have the very real possibility of, of having the effect of, quote, arbitrary laws, end quote. That's the danger. And when you have arbitrary laws being put into effect, you have these conflicts which erupt in society. The people of the county of Suffolk take issue with it. Not necessarily today, but 250 years ago they did. And when they take issue with it, they refuse to comply. They regard them as, quote, not binding, end quote. And then they further 
quote, support all sheriffs and other civil officers who refuse to act under these arbitrary laws, end quote. And now the stage has been set for a conflict. And where does that go? Where does that lead? You wonder, I've talked before again about why the Constitution is so short. Why is the President of the United States so limited in power? Why is the scope of the Constitution so limited? This is why, right here. The local people should in large measure be allowed to govern themselves. That was the whole message, the whole point to the Constitution of the United States, the Declaration of Independence, the Revolutionary War, and these resolutions passed out of the county of Suffolk near Boston sometime about September 10th in 1774. That's the whole point. It was always about that. So if your state government passes a law where you are most closely represented by your state legislature, that's probably not an arbitrary law. Like it or like it or don't like it, it's probably not an arbitrary law unless it clearly violates the state constitution or some 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 part of the federal constitution which again is very limited. The only way it could do that is to violate part of the Bill of Rights or one of the other amendments or some particular federal authority. That again is very limited. So we're not talking about again, keep in mind when we read this kind of stuff, we're not talking about laws that we don't like. We're not talking about laws that, frankly, don't really make any sense, because Lord, Lord knows there's plenty of those. We're talking about arbitrary laws. What were they talking about when they said arbitrary laws? I just described it to you. Basically, the dictates of the central power where the people are not represented. Taxation without representation being one of them. The overthrow of the Massachusetts government being another one. The overthrow of the judiciary in Massachusetts being another one. All of these intolerable acts. Arbitrary laws. This is a very important lesson to learn in American history. This is something that never gets taught in school, either in high school or college, frankly. I mean, unless unless you happen to take that rare class where it actually does happen, you actually learn this stuff. It's not popular to teach this stuff. Most people don't like to hear it. This is one of those this is one of those episodes where people, you know, probably about mm, 10, 20% of the, the new audience that cruises into this particular episode of the podcast, they're gonna tune right back out and they're never gonna come back until they have that epiphany. That this stuff is deadly important. This is uh, keep, keeping true to these principles is how you keep a country and a society from tearing itself apart. I'm just going to put that out there. Now, towards the end of this paragraph, we have this uh, an interesting an interesting statement as well. They're they're basically trying to explain that th- this is this is dem- demonstrative of the economic turmoil in Massachusetts as a result of the overthrow of the Massachusetts government, the the stopping of business in and out of the port of Boston. We've talked about that before. The upending of the judiciary, the general chaos that might result from such acts. Let's read this section again. Quote. It is recommended to all creditors to be as lenient as possible and even generously indulgent to those who owe them, and to all debtors to pay as speedily as possible all their debts. And in case of any difference, it is recommended to submit it to an arbitration, and whoever shall refuse to do so shall be declared as cooperating with the enemies of his country, end quote. Now, what country are we talking about? We've talked about this before. Can you guess what what they mean by the enemies of their country? I would argue here in this context— considering these came out of the uh, the county of Suffolk, they're talking about the country of Massachusetts. That's how they referred to Massachusetts at the time. This is yet further evidence of that. This is uh, We've seen it before. I've talked about it before. Again, it, it shifts the focus of the citizen to a more local perspective. If your country is Massachusetts, that's where your attention is. That's where your focus is. That's where you look to for your, your most adequate government. Not to the parliament, not to the king. And not to the General Congress and not to the President today, but to your state government, because that is your state. And what is a state but a kind of country, so to speak? That's again why the Declaration of Independence says that 
These United... I'm paraphrasing slightly. These United Colonies are, and of a right ought to be, free and independent states. Plural. Not a free and independent state. Singular. These are many states. Countries, if you will. More or less. I mean, it's, it's not quite so black and white as that. But I'm just trying to make a point. You gotta understand where I'm going with this. I'm trying to paint a picture for you here that the United States is not some monolithic country. It is made up of, that's why it's called the United States, it's made up of independent states. And those state governments are supposed to have the most, the most authority and the most power over the people within those states. It's the way it's supposed to work. Why? Because it's closer to the people, that's why. Another one of those little clues about how the government of the United States is supposed to be formed. They regarded people who didn't follow this particular uh, thought as an enemy of the country because it was about helping each other. Okay, we have this oppressive central power, the tyrant King George III, reaching down, shaking his little fist, and stomping his feet like some little child, trying to get his way, and by gosh, he is going to do it the tyrannical way, like most dictators do. Most dictators really behave like small children most days, which is why, you know, uh, frankly speaking, you gotta... Treat them like, uh, treat them like children, uh, for lack of a better way of putting it. Uh, you really do, cause that's, that's how they behave. There is a, there's a great temptation in the central power always. Even, even central powers that aren't tyrannical by their nature, there, there is this tendency to act like children. And the, the people of Massachusetts here are trying to deal with this, this nut job, King George III that they've got running around. And they're trying to do it by helping each other. And that's what they're trying to convince people to do here, is they're trying to say that, you know, if you're a lender, uh, go easy on those people who have borrowed from you. But, at the same time, they do make sure and say, if you're a, if you're a debtor, quote, pay as speedily as possible all their debts, end quote. So this is no time for using an excuse not to pay the debts. You pay them as soon as you possibly can. Sometimes people do that. Sometimes in an emergency situation, people use it as a, uh, a means to uh, try to demonize the lender and rally the borrowers against the lender. And tyrants will do this, by the way. Tyrants will try to do this because it's, it's useful to them to try to demonize a smaller portion of the population and use the larger portion of the population to attack them, to basically turn that population into, into the tyrant's attack dogs. And he'll first turn that, that mob of people against an easy target. And then he will turn that mob of people against another target. And then another. And then another. And that's how the tyrant works. The Founding Fathers were having none of that. Because they weren't tyrannical. They were saying, lenders, please be gracious. But at the same time, you debtors, make sure you pay all your debts as speedily as possible. That's the difference between a tyrant and these people of Suffolk in Massachusetts. Very different personalities at work. Because if they were tyrannical, what they would do is they would try to rally all of the borrowers to attack the lenders and to say that these debts need to be forgiven or these de you, you, you don't need to collect these debts. These people don't need to pay their debts, so on and so forth. We have an emergency, da-da-da-da-da, on and on and on. That's what tyrants do. Again, I'm trying to convey this to you as clearly as I possibly can. If you want to know the answer to a question, look at history and it will answer the question for you. It's right there on the page. I don't make this stuff up. I'm reading it straight from the letter. But it's fascinating to get a window into Massachusetts at this time, isn't it? I think it is. Because if you think this isn't applicable to today, around the world, 
It's applicable to today. I don't care where you're at. I don't care if you're in Japan. I don't care if you're in France. I don't care if you're in Poland. I don't care if you're in Britain. I don't care if you're in the United States or Mexico or South America, wherever you're at. This is all applicable to you right now, this second, today. And it will be tomorrow and a thousand years from now. There's a reason why some of this sounds familiar. If you're paying attention to the to the last two letters that I have read, there are things that sound familiar, aren't there? And the reason why you get that feeling, if you're paying attention, the reason why you get that feeling is because it's applicable to today as much as it was 250 years ago. And these principles, as the Founding Fathers were writing them on the page, they were applicable 5,000 years before that. They always will be. This never ends. This is the battle. This is the eternal battle of mankind. And it will never end. That's the, uh, that's the value of this information. That's the value of this podcast. Now let us continue. Quote, that as fortifications seem to be erecting to make the town a garrison, it is recommended that all militia officers throughout the country muster and train their men to, to the use of arms once every week. That although these preparations are thought necessary, they mean to be only on the defensive till reason and the principles of self-preservation shall dictate otherwise and no longer that if any zealous supporter of the rights of his country should be taken up agreeable to the late act, they will seize every servant to the present administration, and keep them in custody till the person so taken up be liberated, that they will not have any connection with Great Britain, Ireland, or the West Indies till the acts be repealed, will refrain from the use of British goods, India tea, and peace goods, and encourage the manufacturers of America, for which latter business a committee is appointed that a provincial congress to be held the 2nd October next, similar agreements be recommended first to each county separately, then jointly as a province. My memory not being sufficient to retain the whole, as only I had sight of the papers at the coffee house, I have been obligated to omit many important ones, but upon the whole I think it the most serious thing that has yet appeared. What makes it more so is the Continental Congress have unanimously approved and adopted the whole without one dissenting vote, end quote. Again, this was two paragraphs of information, and in these two paragraphs you have an unbelievable wealth of information, all of which is very applicable to today, tomorrow, a thousand years from now, ten thousand years from now, and so on and so forth. And if you don't, if you don't believe that, you're no student of history, and I would encourage you to become one as expeditiously as you possibly can, uh, because it will do great, great benefit to you, your family, your country, your community, etc., and of the history of the world. Uh, but for those of you on this podcast who are students of history with me, who join me on this uh, study group, I, I think you'll agree with me that there was a lot of information here. And I'm, I'm not going to talk about all of it for time consideration, I don't think. But I will talk about a couple of these items specifically, one of which we've talked about before. I still have another feature-length full episode to do on just this one topic, but you know, periodically, I like to stop to add an exclamation mark to the discussion in the aggregate. Quote, that as fortifications seem to be erecting to make the town a garrison, it is recommended that all militia officers throughout the county muster and train their men in use of arms once every week, end quote. So what fortifications and what town? We're talking about Boston, we've talked about it before. Uh, we have uh, General Gage and his boys uh, arming up. Uh, troops in the town of Boston and setting up for what seems to be what well they they articulated as being you know to defend the town but from what what were they defending the town from a couple of rabble rousers who threw some tea into a harbor I don't think so I don't think you need to turn the 
town into a, quote, garrison, end quote, in order to protect the town from a couple of rabble-rousers. I think this is for something else, and we established that previously. This is quite obviously what I had described before. This is this thing going on in Boston is the beginning of a military operation. They're setting up defensive operations around the city of Boston so that they have a, uh, a secure position from which to launch offensive military operations. I, I likened it before to a uh, the Gulf War in 1990-91. Uh, Desert Shield preceded Desert Storm. It's a little bit of a different scenario, don't get me wrong. This isn't this isn't 100% apples to apples, but it is a very similar concept. Uh, militaries have done this probably since the beginning of time, since there were organized militaries. This is not this is not genius. This is just standard military operations at work. But we have here another reference to quote, all militia officers throughout the county muster and train their men in the use of arms once every week. But it is quote, recommended, end quote recommended. Does that sound like the National Guard to you? I mean, like, when there's an emergency, for example, and either the governor or the president calls up the National Guard, do they recommend that the National Guard deploy and go off and do something? Like, you know, assist a town after after a natural disaster? No. They order them to. Interesting. Between this statement here and the statements of General Washington at the time, you know, Colonel Washington, if you will, uh, in the county of Fairfax, talking about the, uh, the militia you know, organ, you know, providing arms, you know, quote, themselves, end quote, was the word that was used, recommended themselves, you know, and militia officers throughout the county, so on and so forth. All of this is describing to you what a well-regulated militia is. The well-regulated militia was constituted of the people, by the people, and for the people. Have you heard that before? That term, of the people, by the people, and for the people. That's what the well-regulated militia is. It's organized, it's organized by militia officers who really are just selected, because of usually because they had some experience serving in a regular army. But the people who were in the militia were really just recommended to do this and recommended to do that. And honestly, they could come and go as they could please. They could leave the militia or join the militia however they want, so long as it's okay with everybody else to join, that is. I mean, clearly you don't want some nut job in the militia. But these are men who... Uh, trained, they trained their, quote, trained their men in the use of arms, end quote. Well, how in the world did they have arms amongst the people? Well, the answer is they owned guns. They all had their own firearms, especially back then. Mostly it was used for hunting, but frankly speaking, it was also used for frontier defense in some cases, you know, in case uh, there was ever a uh, an Indian incursion. It happened before, French and Indian War. Does everybody remember that? Dr. Franklin actually was involved in that in some regard. He actually went out to the frontiers of Pennsylvania and assisted in the construction of military forts, I believe, out there. I know he did some work out there on the frontier during the, during that war and to, uh, to help with the Indian incursions. I know he did. Uh, you can do some research on that and look into it in more depth, but these people did this using the guns that they had generally available. And we talked about it before, how the, the gun stores in Boston were literally cleaned out because people bought them out of guns. Guns. They, they saw a danger coming. They went to the stores and they cleaned them out. This is the well-regulated militia, ladies and gentlemen. So if ever you have any doubt as to what the Second Amendment of the United States actually stands for, we're talking about it right now. And there's reasons for that. It's not popular to talk about this. It really isn't. I mentioned in the previous episode of the podcast, the Independence Day episode, that the American people have a hard time reconciling themselves with April 19th. It's why it's never talked about in this country. They have a hard time reconciling themselves with it because, you know, people in the United States today are so fragile and so delicate that they can't handle it. And some people are going to disagree with me. Oh my gosh, Roman, how dare you? How dare you say that the American people are fragile and delicate? Well, I don't know. I just look at the evidence. 
standing right in front of me, and I look at all of the talk around this issue, around the well-regulated militia. I listen to all of the talk about it, and some people know what they're talking about. Most people don't, because most people have not read these documents. That's why we're here. That's why we're on this podcast. And if this, you know, upsets your delicate sensibilities, and if this troubles you in some particular kind of way, you can deactivate and go listen to some other podcast. But this this is not a um, this is not a podcast for the feeble-minded. This is a podcast for history enthusiasts and students of history and people who want to make themselves a student of history who are willing to take on the the tough lessons of history. Like I mentioned before, you know, it's not easy to study or understand what warfare is really all about and to and to read the stories about what happens to people in times of war. It's not pleasant to talk it's not pleasant to read that. There's only two kinds of people who read that kind of stuff on a regular basis. People who force themselves to because they feel like they have to because they're students of history. And then there's some sick twisted individuals in society who really enjoy it. They enjoy the blood guts and the gore and they like it. They like the they like the the stories of the people being mutilated and mistreated by a military who has uh, either been turned against them, turned against their own citizens, so to speak, or an invading army from a foreign land. But I, I tend to fall in the former category. That is to say, I, I do it because I feel like I have to. And it's not pleasant to do, but most people don't do it. Why? Because of their delicate sensibilities. It's the same thing with the well-regulated militia. It's an unpleasant story from history. It shouldn't be necessary, right? In an ideal world, you shouldn't have to have a well-regulated militia. In an ideal world, around the town of Boston in the county of Suffolk, you shouldn't have a situation where it was recommended, quote, that all military officers throughout the county muster and train their men in the use of arms once every week, end quote. These are people who are afraid of their government. These are people who are afraid of their own soldiers. These British soldiers that are building a garrison town in Boston, these were soldiers that should have been charged with the defense of the people. Their honor as a soldier demanded it, but they didn't do that. They were turned against their own people to attack them, to seize their property illegally, and to murder them. And like I said before, it's happened so many times in history. I, I, there, there wouldn't be enough time on this podcast in a year to describe to you all of the times that this has happened in the history of the world in detail. That's why you have a war-regulated militia. That and the off chance the country gets invaded by some foreign army. Really hard to do that if you don't have the right to keep and bear arms. And, there, and if you wonder why the Second Amendment is worded the way that it is, because to some people it's very, very confusing. A well-regulated militia being the necessity of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. I think I got all those words right. I don't have it in front of me. I just have it memorized. It's all tied up in what these people are talking about here in this letter and every other letter that I have read about this subject. And the reason why I'm dwelling on this for about five to ten minutes on this episode is because, again, I told you a long time ago that this issue, you would see it again and again and again and again, so that you know that I'm not cherry-picking this. This isn't me picking one letter that just happens to mention this, and then I, I, I act like it's it was it was demonstrative of the attitudes of the whole of the country at the time. No, this was the attitude of the whole of the country at the time, and I have read so many letters on this at this point, I can't even keep track of them all. And I've got a whole stack of letters that I haven't even gotten to for the next episode that we're going to do on this, just this one topic. This will continue, and it's an important lesson to learn, because this is, and the reason why this lesson, almost above all others, is so very important is because this is the life and death of the people in a society and in a country. It's that serious. This is not a game. Life is not pretty. Life is not fair. Life is not a pleasant storybook, 
Fantasyland fairy tale. Life is ugly and it is evil most days, and it's only in the United States and a few other places that we forget that. It's important to remember. And like I said, on Independence Day, Independence Day or the week of Independence Day is a good day to convey this information. If you have children, if you have friends and family who don't know this stuff, it's a good time to convey it to them because there's a reason why that document was signed. And there's a reason why it was able to be signed. They wouldn't have been able to sign that document in Philadelphia if there were not men on the front lines with guns. A lot of them militia, by the way. In other words, just just people who were there. Not people who signed papers in Washington's army, but just people who showed up. If those people hadn't been there... And by the way, those people were there before Washington ever showed up. Washington wasn't there in the beginning. His army was not there in the beginning when the war started. They weren't. If it wasn't for those people who had been standing there on the front line with their rifle at the fr- in the front of their house, keeping a watch over the freedoms and liberties of the people of Massachusetts, that document, the Declaration of Independence, never would have been signed in the first place. That's what this is all about. And if you want to keep that document, if you want to keep that document relevant and meaning something, you better stick true to those principles. The people of the county of Suffolk in Massachusetts in 1774 are trying to communicate with you. They're trying to deliver to you a message, and I am just the messenger, but it's not my message. It's theirs. Listen to the people of the county of Suffolk in 1774. I'm dead serious about this, because there's there's other people in other parts of the country, like today, for example, that have an opinion about this, and believe me, their opinion doesn't matter. They like to think it does, but it doesn't. People, Some people in this country have gotten too comfortable. Comfort and prosperity has consequences. It separates people from the reality of the world. And this last part of this statement from the uh, from our from our friend here, Mr. Williams, is interesting. Quote, but upon the whole, I think it the most serious thing that has yet appeared. What makes it more so? The Continental Congress have unanimously approved and adopted the whole without one dissenting voice. End quote. Clearly, these sentiments of the people of Suffolk are shared by a great many people in the whole of the colonies. But in large measure, the freedom of the United States of America today. 250 years later, is built upon the shoulders of the people of Massachusetts in 1774. That's why it's important to study history. How many people understand that? How many people in this country today even know who the people of Massachusetts in 1774 really were? I've talked about this before. If you ask most most Americans that question, you're going to get two answers. I don't know and I don't care. And that ladies and gentlemen, is the fundamental problem with the United States of America today. And if this country ceases to exist, it will be because of that. And only that. It'll be because of, I don't know, and I don't care. That will be the thing that brings down the United States of America. It may be a foreign military that actually actually drives the final nail into the coffin, but that foreign military will do it because of, I don't know, and I don't care. Now, those are some sobering statements, and again, some people can't handle it. Oh my gosh, Roman, you're being such do- you're so doom and gloom with you. Oh my, how, how could you possibly say something like that? The United States will cease to exist, a foreign army will drive the final nail in the coffin, and blah, blah, blah. Oh my gosh, it's so terrible, you make me want to crawl into a dark corner and cry. Yeah, I know, but somebody has to say it. And it's not pleasant for me to have to talk about it. It's not pleasant for me to, to, to think about it, but that's just, it's just the truth. Ignorance and apathy are, are, are the, the, the deadliest of things to a society. It doesn't get much worse than that. Something that would seem so innocuous, so so benign as ignorance and apathy is actually a cancer within a society. That's my argument. This That's my opinion. People can disagree with me, but that's it's an educated opinion at that. Because I, I've cast a glance back through time and read some history, and that's what I see a lot of the time. Let us continue. Quote, 
When the court opened at Springfield, 3,000 people assembled and required the court individually to sign a declaration that they never would directly or indirectly act under the present form of government, end quote. You know, those 3,000 people, they did more to free the rest of the world from tyranny than almost any other group of 3,000 people in the history of the world. You know why? Because they showed up. That's it. Now, these 3,000 people assembled. They, they did what? They, quote, required the court individually to sign a declaration that they never would directly or indirectly act under the present form of government, end quote. An illegal government, by the way. It was a military dictatorship. They're not talking about the king and parliament in Britain. They're talking about the government of Massachusetts, the illegal government of Massachusetts. So keep that in mind. Understand what the context here actually is. It is an illegal military dictatorship that has been set up in the country of Massachusetts. This is some serious stuff, but this is what happens, again, this is what happens when you create arbitrary laws, and rightfully so. But this is the kind of thing you want to try to avoid. You don't want those 3,000 people to ever have to show up. But when arbitrary laws, the dictates of the central power, overreach and they go too far, and they go into the point of effectively overthrowing a government, overthrowing a constitution, subverting a constitution, etc., etc., those 3,000 people have to show up, and they should. And this is what results from it. Those 3,000 people, like I said, did more to free the rest of the world than any other 3,000 people alive, probably at the time. Because the actions that these people took in, the, in, in Suffolk County and elsewhere in Massachusetts at this time, it reverberates around the world still to this day because of the consequences of their actions. The consequences of their actions was the Declaration of Independence. It was the Constitution of the United States. It was the United States as a whole and what it would eventually represent. Imperfect always dangerously imperfect in the beginning, but over time, a little bit better as we went, up to a certain point. Eventually, these things kind of plateau. But the free people of the United States were able to do great things in some cases. World War II is, is one of them. An unfortunate necessity, but that war had to be fought. Who was going to be able to end that thing except the United States of America? You know, when the United States, before the United States of America got involved in various ways, the British Empire was on its heels. I hate to say it, but it was. And frankly speaking, the Soviet Union was being devastated. And so was China, by the way. Being devastated and ravaged and mutilated by the Imperial Army of Japan. And then the United States got involved. First, before they actually started shooting, by sending supplies to Great Britain, Lend-Lease. We also sent supplies, a lot of supplies, to the Soviet Union. Russia, still to this day, does not like to talk about it. Russia does not like to talk about how much supplies the United States sent to the Soviet Union, but it was a lot. A lot of food, a lot of trucks, a lot of equipment. And the Soviet Union was able to move their military because the United States of America was supporting it. The Soviet Union did not support the United States Army, by the way. It was the other way around. Oh, sure, there was some logistical cooperation, blah, 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 but as far as mass logistical support of the United States military, huh? No, the United States handled that. And the unbelievable atrocities that were, that were occurring in China by way of the Japanese Imperial Army, who was going to end that? Was China going to end that? No, they couldn't. They didn't, they didn't have the ability to. Was Great Britain going to end that? No, they didn't have the ability to. And frankly speaking, the Soviet Union didn't have the ability to on their own. In the end, they, uh, they got in a few uh, quick shots at Japan because the United States had them preoccupied, and so did China, by the way. But it was the United States who ended that war. We all know that. In August, September 1945. Because no other country could do it. Only the United States could end that war. We were the only ones who were able to do it. Now, we didn't do it alone. But as far as driving that final nail through tyranny and oppression, 
and the evil armies that were marching across the world, no other country could drive that nail through. But we did it with the support of some great people in France, in Great Britain, in Poland, and elsewhere. But the United States drove that nail through and finally ended it. And thank goodness for that. And that was in part due to these 3,000 people in Springfield, believe it or not. I firmly believe that. History is all connected, and one thing is not separate from another. And for that reason, and amongst a million others, I am very grateful to these 3,000 people in Springfield in 1774. And it's important, this is why it's important to talk about this kind of stuff on Independence Day with friends and family. It's very important. Because otherwise, how, how else are they going to know about these 3,000 people in Springfield? But you know about it now, and now you can go out and you can tell other people about it. And that's the beauty of this podcast. I gather this information, and we share it together. And we're, this is a, really a team effort here on this podcast. That's why I call it a study group. Uh, we're all in this together. But that's a, that's a beautiful thing that those, those folks showed up. I really, I really am eternally grateful to those 3,000 people. And if you, uh, if you want to, if, if you, if you live in a country that is, you know, quasi-tyrannical and living under some kind of a, uh, an illegal government, uh, Myanmar would be a perfect example of that, I suppose. Uh, people sometimes forget what's going on in Myanmar right now, but last I checked, that, that country is still in a bit of a, a situation, to say the least. They got some issues going on over there. But the, just, just evident, more further evidence that this stuff, it continues to happen. It's just, you know, this stuff happens over and over again. People think it's over, but it's not over. It's never over till it's over, and it never will be over. Step YI. Let's continue. Quote, The selectmen have requested the governor to discontinue his operations in fortifying the town. He has given them a very mild answer declaring his peaceable intentions and wish to promote the happiness of the people, and that no one under his command shall insult them. End quote. Yes. Um, we've heard from the general before about his peaceable intentions fortifying the town. He is a liar. And even if he didn't know, like, I don't know exactly how, I haven't really scrutinized and studied how the orders came down for him to actually go out into the countryside, whether those came down from the king directly, like maybe he thought he was sent there initially for peaceable operations, and then he got orders from the king, which changed everything. Well, in that case, it would have been his military obligation to refuse the order legally, because what he was doing was illegal once he marched outside of Boston and started seizing property illegally and murdering people. He should have refused the order if he was a proper soldier. But he didn't have the honor of a proper soldier. He had the honor of a degenerate reprobate who should have been shot in front of a firing squad. And I'm not joking. Any, any military officer who disregards his constitution, his duty to the people to not seize their property illegally, to not go out into the countryside and murder them, is a dangerous individual who should be shot in front of a firing squad. And General Washington did exactly that with people in his own army when they mutinied, and they thought that they were going to march, and they were going to cause havoc, and they were going to abandon the honor and integrity of a military soldier. General Washington knew how to deal with those people. This isn't me making this up. This is not Roman saying, oh, these people ought to be shot. That's my opinion. That's how... No, this is standard military procedure in any honorable military. And whether the, uh, whether the order comes from a king or a parliament or a prime minister, or whoever, it doesn't matter. An illegal order is an illegal order, and you do not assault the people on the orders of the central power. You do not do it. Now, you do defend the country from domestic enemies in some cases, potentially. That's, those are extreme examples, and those are, this is not, that's not what this was. The city of Boston was not under attack. The people in the countryside of Massachusetts woke up one morning minding their own business. Next thing you know, there was a British column marching through the countryside. 
and they woke up to the sound of Paul Revere and others saying that the British were coming. And next thing you know, we had a shooting war, and rightfully so, because when a military goes out into the countryside like that, there should be a shooting war. Yes, I said it. And, and everybody in America agrees with me who celebrates Independence Day. They won't say it out loud because they're afraid to, but that's why we're all here, because there was a shooting war for our freedom and our liberty. And everybody who comes to the United States as an, as an immigrant and becomes a citizen of the United States agrees with me on this, even if they won't say it, even if they don't understand it. Otherwise, they wouldn't be here because the history, the example, the lessons are all in front of them. They know what they're doing. Let's all say it out loud. There's no reason to be squeamish on this issue. General Gage and his destructive, savage soldiers that he sent out into the countryside did a terrible thing. And that's why these people are saying this. Quote, the selectmen have requested the governor to discontinue his operations, end quote. Stop it. Stop it. Stop it. But he didn't listen. And not only did he, didn't he listen, he made it even worse. The colonists tried every peaceable measure they could possibly think of to stop this from happening. They wrote petitions to the king. They showed up 4,000 strong when there was a misunderstanding about powder and guns. Earlier on, we read an ep was, we have an episode about that. 4,000 patriots. These 3,000 people showed up to the courthouse. The selectmen wrote a letter to the governor. Other letters were written. Other intentions were tried to be made clear. On and on and on, with one peaceful measure after the next, and at every single turn, the colonists were lied to, they were manipulated, and then they were attacked by force of arms, by their own military. It is a despicable, despicable situation in the history of the world. Should never have happened. And it pains me still to this day that these evil, sick individuals like King George III and this tyrant military dictator of Massachusetts decided to go down this particular course of action because tens of thousands of people died, and it didn't have to be that way. These colonists would have been perfectly happy continuing to be a part of the British Empire if they had their rights and their liberties intact according to the Constitution and the ancient rights which they recognized. Their first reaction was always peace and reconciliation until they were met with the barrel of a gun from regular soldiers. And then it changed. And that's how we got to July 4th of 1776. And that's the way that we should educate our children as to what happened, because frankly speaking, and you got to know I'm right about this, most children and most adults in this country, frankly speaking, have no idea about what I just said. The last 20 minutes of what I just said, just absolutely unknown to them. And whose fault is that? Public education system? Yes. But more specifically, the parents of the United States of America, the parents within this country, have failed miserably their children and grandchildren. Not all of them. Not my parents. My parents taught me about this stuff. Your parents may have taught you about this stuff, and you may be teaching your children about this stuff. And if that's the case, then you're doing a whole heck of a lot better than most other people. I can tell you that much right now. And if you live in another country around the world, honestly, these lessons from the United States, it would be you'd, you would be wise to teach this to your children as well. It's good history. Good history is good history. That is to say there's good lessons to be learned. Let us continue. One last sentence just to drive it home in this letter. Quote, The town of Marblehead have agreed to muster their militia four times a week. End quote. So the town of Marblehead have agreed to muster their militia four times a week. What, to attack the British military? No, to prepare for an attack upon themselves. That's the whole point. These militias were typically operating in a defensive nature only. That's the whole purpose behind the well-regulated militia, to be defensive only. You defend your country. You defend your town. You defend your community. You defend your state. That's the responsibility of every adult citizen of the United States of America. Every reasonable, rational, right-thinking adult in the United States of America. 
Some of them take that responsibility upon themselves, and some don't. The worst thing is, is some people want to try to take that responsibility away from other people. That's not only dangerous, it's borderline sadistic, at best. Let us continue on with another letter. Boy, this podcast is going to be a long one, but I want to finish this letter. And we will. Uh, this podcast is probably going to be, hmm, well over an hour, even by the time I get done editing it. Uh, let's uh, read a letter written to Benjamin Franklin from a Charles Thompson on the 1st of November, 1774. Quote, I hope administration will see and be convinced that it is not a little faction, but the whole body of American freeholders from Nova Scotia to Georgia that now complain and apply for redress, and who I am sure will resist rather than submit. End quote. Are you hearing it, ladies and gentlemen? Are you hearing it? This message across these letters is loud, and boy is it clear. There are times, you know, when I wish I could escape the present day, hop in a time machine, and go back to 1774 just to be in the company of these people, just to be in the same room with people like this. But good news, uh, there's a lot of great people in the United States of America today as well. And a lot of people in the United States of America still understand that there were a lot of people who worked really hard and fought really long and hard for the freedom and liberty that we have, including these people from apparently, quote, Nova Scotia to Georgia, end quote. Continuing on, quote, When I look back and consider the warm affection which the colonists had for Great Britain till the present reign, the untainted loyalty, unshaken fidelity, and cheerful confidence that universally prevailed till that time, and then view the present heartburnings, jealousies, gloom, and despair, I am ready to ask, with the poet, Are there not some chosen thunders in the stores of heaven armed with uncommon wrath to blast those men who by their cursed schemes of policy are dragged, are dragging friends and brothers into the horrors of civil war and involving their country in ruin? Even yet the wounds may be healed and peace and love restored, but we are on the very edge of the precipice. I am, sir, your affectionate friend, and humble servant, Chaz Thompson, end quote. This is a beautiful paragraph. You know, I, I feel, um, when I read it, I, I, I literally feel it in my heart and in my spirit. It's hard to describe. And I don't know if others feel it as well when I read it, but these were some amazing people who were able to articulate things so well. Quote, When I look back and consider the warm affections which the colonists had for Great Britain till the present reign, the untainted loyalty, unshaken fidelity, and cheerful confidence that universally prevailed till that time, and then view the present heartburnings, jealousies, gloom, and despair, I am ready to ask with a poet, are there not some chosen thunders in the stores of heaven armed with uncommon wrath to blast those men, who by their cursed schemes of policy are dragging friends and brothers into the horrors of civil war involving their country in ruin, end quote. I have scarcely read a more well-put and heartfelt statement of the situation of things in 1774 than that paragraph right there. That is beautifully written, if I do say so myself. And if you agree with me, leave a review on the podcast and tell me if you appreciate the sentiments of uh, Mr. Thompson, because I sure do. If I could thank this man, I would. They had great affection for Great Britain. It was their, it was their, it was, it was where they were from. It was their, they, they recognized their king, and they were loyal to, to the king of England and to, to the British Empire itself, and they believed in it. They believed it in part because of their, their constitution, their ancient rights that were recognized therein, and they loved it. It's a, it's a kind of patriotism that he's describing here. Some people think that to be an evil word in the modern time, but it's not. Patriotism is what keeps a country alive. It's the lifeblood of a nation. 
in many ways. It's the only thing that keeps the spirit alive. Well, maybe a few other things, but that's a big one. He talks of untainted loyalty and unshaken fidelity. We could say that about the United States today. I know a lot of Americans feel that way about the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. Don't we feel the same way today? I do. The problem is, oftentimes these terrible characters enter into the equation. And it results in these heartburnings, jealousies, gloom, and despair like what he talks about. This is what we're trying to avoid today. This is what we're trying to stop from happening. And he quotes, Are there not some chosen thunders in the stores of heaven armed with uncommon wrath to blast those men? End quote. I, I, you know, I like to think that there are. Uh, I hate these nefarious characters in society who try to drag a country towards civil war. I, I absolutely despise them. But they are, they are always present, sometimes in large numbers, sometimes in small numbers, but they're always there. And if you pay close attention, you know exactly who they are. Usually people who have no loyalty or fidelity to anything except themselves and their money. Just FYI. You remember those, uh, remember those, uh, corrupt people who call themselves elites? And uh, unfortunately, most of the rest of the country, most of the rest of the world calls them elites as well. I just call them the corrupt. You remember those people? Yeah. Those are the people who have no loyalty or fidelity to anything but themselves and their money. And that's the kind of people like what he's talking about here. The friends of the tyrant. And you know, this is another one of those random paragraphs that was written in a letter 20, 250 years ago that someone might read and go, eh, moving on. But I pause and I reflect upon it. Because it's so valuable, and it reflects so well the attitude of the time, and this transition that took place because of the Acts of Parliament, because of King George III, and because of General Gage, and many others. It turned these very patriotic and loyal subjects in the colonies into a necessary set of defenders of liberty and freedom that had no choice but to take up arms to defend it, because it was under attack. And when freedom and liberty are under attack... There's only one right thing to do, and that is to defend it. And I tell you, these guys, I don't, it's really quite striking. You know, we talked, in the first letter that we read, we talked about the, um, the appeal that the, that the Congress sent to the King of Great Britain to try to appeal to his, his, his better nature in a peaceable fashion. And we talked about the selectmen asking General Gage to discontinue his military operations and this illegal government. At every turn, the colonists tried so many peaceful ways to get these men to see reason. And it's good that they did, because if they would have rushed into war, if they would have rushed to start shooting, they would have given history a terrible example to follow. But they did the best they could. They did everything that they could do to try to reconcile themselves with the, the king and with the British Empire that they had been loyal to and faithful to. But it just didn't work. It's very sad. This relationship between people and government is a very important thing to study. And the ways in which it falls apart and degenerates into, quote, the horrors of civil war, end quote. We have to learn these lessons. It's not happy. It's not, uh, it's not fun. But we have to learn the lessons. And that's why we're here on this podcast. That's why we're here on our study group. And, I, you know, I want to thank each and every one of you who are still with me on this episode, who haven't tuned it out, who stuck through to the end, and listened to the difficult messages conveyed by the people of Suffolk and Massachusetts and by Mr. Charles Thompson, Mr. Williams, I know for, I, I know almost to a certainty that they would be happy that you are here to listen to their message and their, their writings from history because they're, they were, they weren't just writing a message to Dr. Franklin in 1774. They were writing a message to you so that you never forget who these men were, who these men and women were and what they did and why they did it. And if nobody is here to listen, then the message just falls silent. And I, the messenger, am just speaking into the darkness. But that's not the case, because great people like you are there to carry Mr. Charles Thompson's message forward. 
and the message of Mr. Adams, and the message of Dr. Franklin, and the message of General Washington, and the message of Abigail Adams, and so many others. That's you. You do that. And that's what makes you great people. And always know that I appreciate, and I, like I said, I think I, can, I think I can speak for the Founding Fathers, who would, also, who would also thank you for doing what you do, for carrying the message forward. It's a great thing that you do. So thank you again for joining me on this episode. I'll skip my concluding remarks section and just conclude with, again, uh, reiterating the, the statement that these letters are so very important, and this podcast will continue because of that. Uh, my the, the tempo of the podcast has changed somewhat. I've gotten off my regular schedule that I had had, which was Sunday, or excuse me, Mondays and Thursday episodes. I'm now doing about an episode a week on the podcast, and that'll change a little bit. I'll try to ramp that up again and do a couple episodes a week at some point. I had just gotten lost in some research and some other things. But uh, have, no, have no worries. The podcast will continue for as long as I can continue to do it. Uh, as long as I have a microphone and as long as I have access to the world in some capacity, I will try to keep this message going because it needs to be said. Men like uh, Mr. Thompson need to be heard uh, in the 21st century. I think we are in great need of their, their counsel. I think we are in great need of their message so that we remember. And like I said, that'll be the case 30 years from now, 40 years from now, 100 years from now, 1,000 years from now. Uh, these men have a great thing to, to say, a great thing to talk about, and, you know, history never gets old. The 21st century, the 22nd century, doesn't matter. 20th century, 18th century, it's all, it's all talking about the same kind of stuff. And, you know, we got a lot of tyranny in the world today. Uh, we talk about that. We're, we're very fortunate here in the United States of America to still have the Declaration of the Constitution, like I say. So that's why I worry that Americans get complacent and won't listen to this message as much because it's not as urgent as it is in some places. But it's always necessary to know this so that it doesn't get that bad as it is in some places. And you can apply these principles in your life today. And like I said, especially when it comes to defending the Declaration of Independence, that is that is one area where we are in in uh, in some trouble. That 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 document is under constant assault. But uh, I've talked about that before, so we'll march forward on this and and uh, and the other things that we'll discuss. And I hope to see you on the next episode of the podcast. I've seen some increased support for the podcast recently, some increased downloading of the podcast. And I really appreciate that for all you folks who are. Uh, spreading the word about the podcast and getting it out there. I really have no advertising budget to speak of for this podcast, so it's really just you folks uh, who spread the word about the podcast, and I don't uh, I don't take that for granted. It's, uh, it's much appreciated. So with all of that said, this is Roman signing off. Thank you.